When Dorothy has a date but Stan is desperate for support, she pawns her ex onto her bestie Blanche. But when she and Stan hit it off, Dorothy is surprised at the amount of emotion she starts to feel. Will Dorothy tell Blanche what's really bothering her? Will Blanche accept her apology for her doo-doo behavior? Will Rose and Sophia lose their thumbs selling potato-based sandwiches? Let's find out all these answers in today's episode, Take Him, He's Mine. Thank you for the friendship. We've come so far and traveled wide. You're my best friends. I could never I love when we party, dance, and sing, and laugh just doing our thing. No matter the misters that come and go, I hope you know you'll always be my sisters. Joining Sophia in the kitchen, we find she's doing the math surrounding her newest business idea, a sandwich shop. Presenting her numbers, she's wearing a vertically striped blue, red, pink, and green house dress, unsure of the whole thing is Rose, and a yellow sweater ironing away. While the idea of earning extra cash selling sandwiches to construction workers sounds fine and dandy, Rose is feeling a bit uncomfortable as she doesn't know the first thing about a business, a point that makes Sophia all the more happy to work with her, a.k.a rip her off guess who's back back again the riddler's back tell batman that's right dorothy has pulled out our favorite green number her bright green blousey dress thing with purple lapels and matching green green pants fishing for compliments dorothy asks how she looks leaving the floor open to sophia's advice put on some makeup problem being she's already wearing some Sophia's resolution? Maybe eat by candlelight. The reason Dorothy is pulling out the celebrated sexy Riddler suit is because she has a date with Jeffrey the Commodore. No, he wasn't a member of the Grammy-winning Motown group The Commodores, most famous for being the original home of Lionel Richie and for their songs Brick House and Easy, but he was in the Navy. The Navy and Coast Guard has the title of Commodore, one above captain. Nowadays, that title is reserved for honorary persons. As Dorothy goes on, gushing about her new man and how wonderful he is, Rose adds the cherry on top. Wow, besides all of that, he also probably has some handy knot-tying skills. But that sounds like something that would be more of a selling point for Blanche. Speaking of, here comes the lavender-clad nightgown-wearing queen of the boudoir now, and she has news for Dorothy. Someone is at the door for her. Before Dorothy's chipper, my date, has stopped ringing through the room, Blanche corrects her. No, your date isn't here. Your husband is. Dorothy corrects her. Well, since I don't have a husband, call the cops. Sporting the toupee and mustache combo, probably inspired by Burt Reynolds' appearance last week, Stan pops his head over Blanche's shoulder and gets even more accurate your ex-husband. So Dorothy will call the cops herself. Before we go any further, I need to understand what Dorothy is doing with the scarf in her hand. Maybe Jeffrey has a convertible, but you're going to have that, what appears to be maybe a Latin American-inspired printed scarf with the Riddler outfit? I mean, I'm all for pattern play, but this is too much. It makes my whole life worthwhile. <laughs> like a kid dressing themselves for school yes nothing makes sense <laughs> i wanted to wear my leopard pants and my striped shirt cowboy boots there are ways to do pattern mixing but that ain't it giving us a hi it's me stan at the kitchen door stan stays behind as blanche marches towards dorothy letting the swinging door bounce off stan's face blanche is frustrated with dorothy you need to give me notice if you're expecting company. I know this time it's just Stan, but what if it had been someone good-looking or charming? Stan knows well enough to not take offense at what Blanche is saying. As much of a screw-up as he is, he does tend to have moments of being self-aware. As Dorothy walks towards the living room to have a one-minute chat with Stan per his request, Sophia has a question. 
Did his wife come with him, or, being that she's basically a child in her eyes, did she have to stay home and clean out her toy box? Oh, but Sophia's forgetting. The happy couple recently got a horse. I mean, divorce. While Dorothy's lack of enunciation left the elderly Sophia confused as to what she said, she doesn't want anyone to confuse her confusion with concern. Sophia doesn't care if Stan and Chrissy got a horse or a divorce. She just wants to say it right so she doesn't have egg on her face. According to Grammarist.com, the term egg on your face has two possible origins. One being that farm dogs have been known to take a liking to eating chicken eggs. So to find which dog is stealing your profits, you would look for egg on its face. The other possibility traces back to actors in the 1800s, back when a poor performance could earn you a pelting of tomatoes, pies, and yes, eggs. The best example I can think of in today's terms comes from one of my summer delights, Big Brother. When someone is told the whole house is going to be voting out contestant A, but then they all change their minds and vote for B, leaving you the lone person having voted for A, you have egg on your face. Kind of like an uninformed screw-up. Another way to identify the dog-stealing eggs would be their lustrous, beautiful coat. (laughs) That's very true. Get that shiny dog! (laughs) Taking a seat on the couch, Dorothy doesn't wait for Stan to start any BS. She gets right to it. What's wrong? Stan tries to play it off, but she reminds him, We were married for almost 40 years. You can disguise your face and head all you want, but I still know you. This, of course, breaks the weakling, and he begins to sob. I lost it. Unfazed by yet another one of Stan's emotional breakdowns, Dorothy responds with as much comfort as she can muster. You never had it. Losing it can pertain to many things. Money, temper, mojo, mental health. So when Dorothy tells him he didn't have it to begin with, there are so many bases she's covering. I know you were kind of tickled at that moment, Coco. Do you think that it was more implied at, like, sexual? Um... I mean, it's, I mean, that's all, that's in there for sure, but I, I took it as more of a general. You, you just you could never rise. He could never get above his Stanleyness. Yeah, or like he lost, you know, the looks or the charm or whatever, and she's like, "Yeah, you didn't have any of that to begin with, so don't worry about it." Stan specifies, "No, I lost the business I owned for twenty-two years." As he stammers on, crassly making the comparison of the business being like a tissue flushed away, Dorothy, sarcastically of course, says he could always be a poet. I love how Dorothy has evolved in her relationship with Stan. How in the first few episodes, she couldn't be around him. Then as she got further away, she saw how pathetic he was and how much she was growing and working on herself while he just stayed behind. I think many of us have experienced that. You maybe run into an ex years after breaking up, and they're exactly the same. The same complaints, same lack of therapy, same drinking too much. It's always partially, ew, why was I with them? And wow, I've really grown past them. So I love seeing Dorothy hold her boundaries and not get into her protector-fixer mode. He lost a thing. He is sad about it. None of that is her problem, nor does it affect her directly. So she knows she can be supportive and listen, but that's all the energy she's willing to give. I was going to say about Stan's reappearance in the show mm-hmm. is that like on a sitcom, they have to do that by actually having the character come back. But in real life, those exes just kind of come back through mm-hmm. um, things that remind you of them. And uh, sometimes your mind will just wake you up with thinking about them. So it's a, it's a you know, it's a cool sitcom representation of like a, uh, a thing that happens in all of our heads. Yeah, like so. the haunting. Yeah, I think, yeah, yeah. Especially when Dorothy is now in this really happy place and she's dating this guy that is the antithesis of Stan. You know, this well-put-together guy. He's a commodore. He's, you know, all these things. And then here he comes kind of to rain on her, almost like he has a, a sense, hey, I think she's doing well. I need to I need to bombard that and remind her almost like where she comes from. And it can feel that way. I feel like things like that happen sometimes mm-hmm. when you're doing well. Some uh, a negative type of person will sort of float back to the surface. Mm-hmm. Um, I've definitely thought that, you know, in the the rotten, bloated corpse of, a, yeah. of an old friendship or something. Yeah, I've thought that has burst. sometimes, you know, not directly like with you or anything, but more just my own self sabotaging, where I have moments of look at how I was, you know, I'm, I'm really recognizing my role I had in old relationships. Mm-hmm. And just like, I look at where I was and I worry about that reappearing or, um, 
you know, almost trying to self-sabotage to say, well, do I even deserve this? When look at how I was or look at how that relationship was. And then I have to remember different people, different time. I'm different. And that just was what it was. You know, I think, I mean, I worry about that too. So I think it's, I don't know, it's good. I think it's good that we worry about that stuff. Yeah. Because people, if, if you don't worry about repeating those patterns, then you'll just repeat you'll the just patterns. Repeat them if it's not present in your mind. So I don't know. That's a really think, nice point. Thank you. I did it. <laughs> Finally, when it comes to losing the business, Dorothy has one question. And no, it's not about the alimony or the monthly spousal payment Stan gives to Dorothy, which is usually around 30% of income which is from a now-failed business, so I'm thinking she never received that much to begin with. Dorothy's question is about taking a rain check on Stan's pity party. She has a hot date planned, and she is not interested in wasting any more time with this man who is an emotional, financial, and happiness vampire when she has a sexy Commodore on his way. Pulling the manipulative move of, don't leave me alone, there's no telling what I'll do to myself, Dorothy pushes back on Stan. You don't know what you'll do? I know what you'll do. You'll go watch a rerun of the detective show from the 70s starring Buddy Ebsen of the Beverly Hillbillies, Barnaby Jones, before eating a half gallon of rum raisin ice cream. Which, let's take a moment to talk about this. Good for you, Stan. Get that emotional eating going. Pint? What a joke. It's a half gallon for this guy. And rum raisin. I've definitely heard of the flavor, but I've never really thought about it as much as I have when writing this episode, and now I am thinking about it. And yes, it is rum-flavored ice cream, and instead of chocolate chips, it's raisins. I can't really imagine anything worse. Coco, have you had a run-in with rum raisin? Thankfully, no. <laughs> I can't even imagine it. Do they still make it? Yes. I've never seen it in a store uh, when I pulled it up, it was Haagen-Dazs was like the top thing. So like little fancy ones. And I, all the things were, oh, the rum counters the sweetness of the raisins. And I'm like, sweetness of raisins? Raisins are very sweet. They ain't chocolate chip sweet. Well, that's true. That's what I'm talking about. I just, and you're, and you're a, a cranberry raisin guy. Love them. But yeah, just hidden in ice cream. Ooh, I I'm can't willing to imagine. give it a shot. I think that for the show, we need to try some rum raisin. Yeah, we should have some a uh, Patreon of rum raisin trying. <laughs> yeah, multiple, many, many flavors till we get. Sick. Say this one's the best. I, this probably won't go in the show because it's a completely, a completely unfinished. I have no idea what the thought is really, other than that. What I was saying about Stan being like a ghost, you know, that's oh, that sort uh -huh. of thing. I think I was kind of getting to the the point that this like, like sitcoms make, they, they're because of their format, they make the the internal completely external like everything oh yeah everything is out yeah and everything has to be real so that everyone can react to it it has to be almost like a tangible thing all the time yeah that's true you know you wouldn't maybe know as much about people in the amount of time we've spent with them in real life you wouldn't know that much about someone right you know break it down it's been a handful of hours you know it's been like 15 hours that we've spent with the girls and we know when they got pregnant and and when they got married and when their husbands died and yeah. when they've had sex and when, you know, all these things. And so, yeah, you're right. Sitcoms, you have to have, you have to be very open and you have to create vulnerable characters without them seeming too open. That seems pretty tough what they've accomplished in this show. That's why we love it so much. Yippee! <laughs> So after Stan will eat the ice cream, Dorothy surmises, you'll throw it up and pass out in your kimono. While she may have been trying to make the point that he was being dramatic, he sees it as proof that no one gets him like she does. Completely ignoring the boundaries she has previously set, Stan has taken it upon himself to set up an entire evening for them, never considering she might have other plans or just might not want to go. It's still a no for Dorothy. Not even a dinner at Monty's, a walk on the beach, or a dance at the club could tear her away from her Commodore. Stan can't take no for an answer. He's begging, please, I need a shoulder to cry on. Still unwilling to provide any part of her body to this man, Dorothy seeks a shoulder in the kitchen. Misunderstanding and thinking Dorothy is upset, Blanche asks what Stan did to her. 
Dorothy corrects her. No, I'm not missing out on my date, but he really needs a friend. Would one of you go out with him? Once again, I am so impressed with her directness and willingness to ask those questions. My burden brain would be like, well, I can't bother the girls with this trash man that I decided to marry, so I'll cancel and put up with him. Feigning being appalled, Blanche says, oh, you won't cancel your date, so I should have to cancel mine, before Sophia blows her cover. You don't have a date tonight. Rose shares why she shouldn't go. She's terrible at listening to people gripe. But it's then pointed out that she works as a grief counselor, which we've never really heard her talk about her training or schooling, probably why she has the highest rate of what we'll call unsuccessful calls. Which, um, hey, supervisors at the call center, could you maybe take a look at her numbers and maybe see if she's a fit to be a phone line counselor? These are people's lives we're talking about here. But wait. If Rose is selling sandwiches during lunch, how the heck is she working at the center? She might be on some sort of administrative leave. <laughs> they did look at her numbers. She's, yeah. They're like, you can come in on um, Tuesday nights. That's it. With big eyes and even bigger hair shaking with refusal, Rose lays it out. I don't want to go out with Stan. So Dorothy sets her sights on Blanche. Please, it's a huge favor, I know, but please... As I started writing the next part, I had a realization. There might be people listening that have never heard a dial tone, that which Dorothy has used to describe Stan's personality. So once again, children, back when we had landlines, so it is maybe possible you've heard one at work, we had a dial tone, meaning the line was open and you were ready to call someone. It's also a pretty decent description of Stan. Blanche, being the kind, helpful friend that she is, outright refuses to go out with Stan. Not because she doesn't like him or doesn't feel like it, she's simply jealous Dorothy has a date and is being a petty biatch. Knowing her friends well, Dorothy offers Blanche her cashmere sweater whenever she wants it, and she'll give her a nearly full bottle of Chanel No. 5 cologne. Today, this would cost around 80 bucks, so that's a pretty sweet offering. By the way, the difference between perfume and cologne doesn't come down to gender. It's about potency. Perfume has oils that create the scent at about 20 to 30 percent, while cologne's oils are only around 2 to 3 percent, making perfumes stronger smelling and longer lasting. I really can't believe that cologne is only at 2 percent. Yeah, <laughs> 2 cologne, to 3 percent. Guys, cologne is so strong. It's so strong. We are fully vaccinated and we were masked and we went to the movies and we sat in the back row so no one's behind us and we sit to the far side so no one is near us. And then another small group, I think it was of three people, came and sat and they were on the opposite far end of the same row. And it didn't take long until you and I were like, we have to move. Yeah, seconds after they sat, it was just a, a thick, pungent wave. I, oh. They had to be, well, it was a horror movie, and it was on a holiday. So they had to have been high schoolers. It gave me some real Axe vibes, yes. early 2000s, yeah. <laughs> just piled on. So, yeah, we did have to. And and then I know for me, we didn't talk about this, but I know for me, I was like, if I can smell your perfume. I can smell your COVID. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> exactly. And, like, here we are taking all of our precautions and being so safe. We're still going to move. And I wish that scents were advertised this way because my whole life I have hated perfume, but I thought, oh, you're like, you know, when you're little, you're given little, oh, you're a big girl now, mm -hmm. you have little girl perfume. And I remember thinking like, oh, I have to wear this stuff because I smell bad and then I have to, but I hate the smell and it's giving me a headache. But then cologne, I always like better, but that's bad because it's the boy stuff. And it's like, wait a minute. No, it's lighter. <laughs> They sh they, I wish they'd make a, a cologne that was like 0.2%. <laughs> just the lightest smell. Just, just that's, I mean, ugh. cologne is gross. I'll probably, I'll probably cut this part out. No, let it out. Cologne to me has always had like a pungent, almost like smell to me. Well, it's the musk. Yeah, I don't like that. It's animalistic. Oh yeah, it's whatever that, whatever like the thick part is, is just, ha yeah, it's like going into a hot bathroom. Yeah. Ugh. <laughs> We stick to our natural smells in this house. Yeah. Beefers. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> that can stay. Season the season the air with beefers. <laughs> <laughs>
Do you guys? Is that a beef or candle? <laughs> it's it's new beef breeze. <laughs> <laughs> Then Dorothy digs deep. I will introduce you to Jeffrey's naval friends, some of which have been at sea without a woman's touch for more than six months. A staring contest ensues, Dorothy knowing she's won. Without a word, Blanche leaves the kitchen, perches her hands on Stan's shoulders as he sits in the living room chair, and says, Hold tight. I'll be ready and out in two minutes. As Blanche's fabulous cape-looking robe flows down the hall, we transition to the kitchen where we see a pink-robed, apron-wearing Sophia rummaging through the fridge. Going back to the island where Rose is working, she tells her to substitute the tomatoes they've run out of with potatoes. I'm not sure if the plan is to cook them and make little potato slabs for the sandwiches, which I wouldn't be opposed to, or if they're just slicing them raw and hoping the crunch distracts the eater from the starchy slime of it all. Sophia doesn't care either way. They'll just say the name quickly so no one hears the difference. Bacon, lettuce, potato. Bacon, lettuce, potato. In her own light blue robe and yellow apron, Rose answers the newly arrived Dorothy's question about why they are up past midnight. Why they're starting a business. Knowing her mother, Dorothy asks Rose how she got duped into the newest scam. I wasn't duped. In fact, she told me if I had half a brain, I could have come up with the same idea. Not picking up on the shade Sophia was throwing, Rose smiles on as Dorothy rolls her eyes and takes a seat at the table. Rose isn't worried about the business anyway. She thinks it's fun, and it reminds her of when she sold Belgian waffles on the side of the road back in St. Olaf. To be fair, it wasn't exactly a Belgian waffle stand, so much as a place where she sold English muffins she had carved deeper ridges into, seeing as Belgian waffles are thicker than American. I like that she's not really saying, I can do this because I've sold food to people before. She's really saying, I can do this. I've tricked people into buying a different food than what they thought they were getting. Coco, would you rather bite into what you think is a BLT, but it's a BLP, or think you're getting a Belgian waffle, but it's just an overly manhandled carved English muffin? You know, I think I'd go, I'd go with the BL potato because then you get, at least you get the bacon. That's true. And bread. And there's not going to be much left of that English muffin if she's carving the big holes like a Belgian muffin or like a Belgian waffle, then there's just not much left of that. Yeah, that it doesn't really make sense. (laughs) I mean, I I would think that it would be a half an English muffin that she's. You got nothing. (laughs) That will not keep you full. Yes. Yeah, that's not a good deal for your breakfast uh food buying dollar along with the rum raisin we should have like some of these sandwiches and other things she's mentioned just to see what it's really like i would do a fake bacon hold the lettuce cooked potato slice sandwich i mean we fry up some little some some just wafer thin oh yeah potato slices Ooh, (laughs) Ooh, light and crispy crunch oh yeah oh that's nice rose wasn't concerned with getting caught she was a cute kid Sophia assures her that will work in this case as she has gotten so old she's actually cycled back into being cute, which is how she will, quote, peddle this slop. Getting to the important stuff, Rose inquires about the date. Dorothy had a wonderful time, making it worth the misery she put Blanche through. Oh, what's that? A new addition to the kitchen? It's a decorative ceramic plate of fruit, and it's hanging on the wall behind Dorothy, yet another thing just waiting to be walked into by me. Dorothy will have to wait to hear how the time with Stan went, as Blanche still isn't home. That's because when Stan is bummed out, he can drone on and on, his poor me personality only coming in second to his personality when he's not feeling sorry for himself. Wearing a nice but not formal bright blue ensemble with floral print is Blanche, who has declared that her night with Stan has been the most bizarre she's ever had with a man. Not to be confused with the night she had with the men from the Nicaraguan Highlight team. This is actually the second time we've talked about Highlight, the racquetball-esque game with those flingy things instead of rackets. In all fairness to Blanche, a Highlight team only consists of two players. Even though it's assumed she went to dinner at Monty's, Blanche is starving and makes a beeline for the sandwiches she spies on the island. Rose proudly offers her one with a bacon lettuce potato. This gives Blanche pause potato? 
Reminding her she isn't the cute little English muffin waffle-making liar of her youth, Sophia tells Rose to work on her delivery of that line. As confused as we are as to why Blanche would need a sandwich, Rose asks about going to dinner with Stan. Using her skills of knowing my ex-husband, Dorothy plays out a scenario. Let me guess. You're on your way to somewhere nice, but then he sees a nice Pakistani place. Tonight it was Indian. They give you warm beers that come in different glasses. He ordered for her without even letting her look at the menu. And that's an Alicia, oh boy. Never, ever, no, 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 never. Unless it is you, Coco, or maybe my mother, and it's a place we have been before or I have a regular dish, a.k.a. how my mom can go to Chinese Happiness. It's in Gresham, Oregon. They've been around forever. I love them. Go support them if you're in Portland. And she knows that I get the number three, and she knows all my caveats. Or if you knew that there was a place with a good mac and cheese, I could trust you to order for me. You picky eaters that are listening, you know what I'm talking about. Coco, how do you feel about a woman like having their meal ordered or would you ever do that for someone? I wouldn't even want to do it if someone said, oh, can, like, if you, can you order for me? I guess mm. I, I think I've done that before and I hated it because <laughs> it made me think that the server thought I was that person. I don't know. It's a bad thing. It doesn't make sense. Unless yeah, it's you're... one thing to be like, I'm running to the bathroom and we've been waiting for the waiter and they're on their way, like, please just order me boopy bop. Or if you're an introvert and you have a hard time with social interactions like that, totally you, cool. You know what I will I do? Have those. Yeah. I'll do it when we're somewhere and I'm being extra picky. I will <laughs> I will have my mom order for me <laughs> like a child. Like, I'll be sitting there with her. And I'll be like, hey, all the picky stuff, could you, like, throw that on there, too? And she'll be like, oh, and I need this, but without this or this or this. <laughs> or, a, like, a kid's meal item. So after all of that, at least Stan paid the bill, even though he sounds cheap on a tip and had them break of five. Rose is in awe, almost appearing to have believed Dorothy was using mind-reading tricks to know what had happened at dinner. So she asked her to do her next and read her mind about her dinner. Giving us an opening credits moment, a flawless-looking Blanche is twiddling with a grape while giving a cheeky smile as she explains she actually had fun on their date. That since they weren't there for any romantic purposes and there was no effort to impress either party, they were able to just enjoy what they were doing and be themselves. They had so much fun, they even made plans for the next night. And in my opinion, that's how every date should go. No pressure. You don't know the people. Just be yourself. It's fine. This takes Dorothy by surprise. How could it not? I mean, who wants to purposefully spend time with Stan? And Blanche realizes right away that she might have messed up in not asking Dorothy. And instead of getting defensive and saying, well, we're going out and you aren't allowed to care because you're broken up, she makes sure Dorothy's okay with it, that it doesn't cross any boundaries or make her uncomfortable. But why should she care? She has no grounds to object. While her words are saying one thing, the shaky, high-pitched tone of her voice is saying another. Pointing out the obvious reason Dorothy should be upset is Rose. Well, he was your husband. Exactly. He was her husband, until he left for someone even younger than Blanche. Besides, while you're having Stan tomorrow, I will be at a formal ball at the Navy base with my Commodore. Yes, you once, twice, three times later. Letting out some, I'm talking to myself, but I want you all to hear, steam is Rose, who has gone back to her duties as head sandwich artist while bitterly uttering to herself. Dorothy gets a date with a Commodore, Blanche has a date with Stan, I'm standing here making bacon, lettuce, and potato sandwiches. And in that moment, I caught it while we were watching it this morning, Coco, she kind of keeps going. And I wonder if they told Betty, like, just kind of go over there and rattle on about stuff while we cut to make it look like you're kind of upset or annoyed. Or if just for time, they're like, ah, eh, that joke didn't really need to be there. We'll just cut it off at bacon, lettuce, potato. To me, it felt like a, that they decided to edit out a joke or something or the, the end of a joke because it feels kind of unfinished. Yeah. It's funny, but it's not – it's definitely not a, uh, something to cut cut from. Yeah, and cut she's from. still it's talking, a, yeah. so it's like, well, yeah. what What did she say? I think she was maybe just riffing and probably like, oh, and then I'll just have to chop this up and we'll go in the morning and – I am loving all the transitions from the front of the house in this episode. Usually we're coming at the door from the garage side. This episode, it's all about the opposite side, where the lanai would be if the house made any f***ing sense. Sneaking out of the house at dawn is Rose and Sophia. 
as Rose carries what should be about 80 pounds of BLP sandwiches through the house, just on a pile, not in a bag or a cooler, Sophia explains they have to leave early so they can get a better location. Rose has a reasonable concern that now that the sandwiches will be out of the fridge even longer, won't the workers be mad getting a hot sando? Sophia sees her point but raises another. Shouldn't they be paying us more for a hot lunch? Before the classic rainbow checkered dress apron and blue cardigan wearing Sophia and white pants with a white top and a pink with blue trimmed cardigan rose can get out the door, a cream with purple trimmed pajama set wearing Dorothy has come down the hall. It's 5.30 a.m. Why are you leaving the house now to go sell lunches? Well, because they have to get a good spot before Johnny No Thumbs beats them to it, implying that the lunch scene is run by mobsters. And Johnny is a multiple-finger-lacking mobster, not just his thumbs. That's why Rose is so impressed when she watches him make a veal and pepper hero, or a sandwich. Hearing the name, Dorothy assumes Sophia is messing with people in the mob, making her reasonably concerned. Being Sicilian, Sophia isn't worried. Besides, if he was a big deal in the mob, they wouldn't have cut off his fingers to the point that when he waves, he looks like he's flipping you off. As Rose continues to make her way to the door, she tells Dorothy to go get back to bed. Well, she won't be doing that. She's too upset. In that moment, we see Sophia let go of the door and scurry her little tush across the room to be at her daughter's side. What's wrong, she asks. Jeremy, her Commodore dream man, is leaving town. This is not shocking news to Rose, who had a bad feeling about the guy from the start. First off, where was this concern when Dorothy was talking about him, Rose? And what are these apprehensions exactly? That because Jeffrey was a sailor, he was nothing more than a dirty old pirate, basically? A swabby is just a slang term for a sailor or pirate. According to Rose, Jeffrey and his friends would, long before the sea shanty trend of TikTok, sing their ditties as they used tricks from... Oh boy, the Orient. Rose, do you mean they learned things from traveling around the world or to Eastern Asia? All of this before he would yell, Listen, my brave sailor friends, or avast me hearties. Starting in the 1700s, sailors and tattoos became one and the same, and according to Sailor Jerry, the snake tattoo represents potency and power. Unlike panthers, which are usually depicted in mid-action, snakes are typically shown coiled and ready to strike, representing a don't-tread-on-me sensibility, thus warding off evil, misfortune, and potential brawls. Maybe that would work for Jeffrey. Perhaps Rose is confusing Navy sailors with pirates because she's been reading Robert Louis Stevenson's 1881 classic novel about pirates and hunts for gold, Treasure Island. Rose disagrees. She knows all of this is due to her Nordic roots. Her Viking history is full of seafaring or sea-traveling people. Dorothy counters. Sure, they did do that, but they did it in horned helmets and metal bras. Well, Dorothy, you're only half right on this one. As previously discussed, Vikings didn't actually wear horned helmets. But when it comes to the metal bras, Viking women were the first in Western civilization to develop them. According to TheAge.com, it's believed the women developed metal fasteners and plates around the breasts connected with colorful fabrics made to be especially stunning in firelight. All of their clothing was actually fairly revolutionary and colorful, but it all went away once Christianity came through and told them all their stuff was forbidden because it was pagan. Well, none of that is the case here, Rose. It turns out Jeffrey has been called to duty in the Aleutian Islands, which is a chain of 69 islands. Nice. 14 of which are volcanic in the Bering Sea. Basically, you could start in Alaska and island hop across to Russia. So it's isolated. Which is probably why Jeffrey chose it as the location for his secret mission, which will allow for no contact to the outside world for a year. A.K.A. he took the coward's way out of dumping her and instead made up a story. Bullet dodged, Dorth. Bullet dodged. As a distraught Dorothy rhetorically asks, why does Mr. Wright always go so wrong? Her mother is there to provide the answer she wasn't seeking. Oh, it's because you're not very perceptive. 
fair, she does like to ignore red flags. Just then, a stunningly red-clad, casual Friday version of her wedding dress, Blanche, comes in the front door. She's shocked to find her roomies up at 5.30, assuming they'd still all be in bed. Then they realize, wait, we thought you were in your bed. Making her way to her room, the girls ask where she's been all night, and it was with Stan. I love that there is no walk of shame here with Blanche. She isn't embarrassed to have been out all night or concerned with her friend's judgments, since, you know, there shouldn't be any. Instead, she casually says how great of a time she had and that she'll have to tell them everything in the morning. And while it technically is the morning, Blanche gives a flirty little shrug and a wink before continuing her journey down the hall. A barefoot Dorothy turns back to her mother and Rose with a shrug of disbelief. They, too, aren't really sure of what to make with the situation. A barefoot Dorothy turns back to her mother and Rose with a shrug of disbelief. They, too, aren't really sure what to make of the situation. It's a new day and we're back at the grocery store, home to Miami's most obnoxious pepperoni sticks. As a jeans with a teal polo and yellow cardigan de Blanche pushes the cart, begging not to be ignored, a white shirt and pants with a poofy and pastel, I'm a mature mother but still cool version of an 80s vest shirt thing wearing Dorothy, starts talking through the shopping list. A can of cleanser, except she grabs a spray bottle, how dare you, and six cakes of soap. That's just an old-timey way of saying a bar of soap. Blanche continues to beg. You won't talk to me because you're mad, but how can I fix it when I don't know why you're mad? Reason 4192 as to why I loathe and do not tolerate the silent treatment. Finally, Dorothy speaks. You had coffee and a walk on the beach. You know what a walk on the beach means to you. When you do that, you have to shake the sand out of your underalls. Underalls were from Hanes, and they were basically pantyhose with built-in underwear, all for the purpose of not having panty lines. Blanche still isn't sure what Dorothy is insinuating about her time with Stan, so Dorothy makes it a little more clear. You've never just gone on a walk on the beach. It always leads to sex. While that has been true, it was no longer. As Beauregard Jefferson told her on her 16th birthday, there's a first time for everything. Which I can only imagine what he was alluding to. For Blanche, that means last night was the first time she went on a walk on the beach with a man and it didn't lead to sex. For Dorothy, it means that last night was the first time she slept with Stan. Nearly laughing at the accusation, Blanche tells her she's wrong. Again, instead of listening to and believing her friend, Dorothy says, oh, so it wasn't the first time. Dude, bro, chica, listen, he's your ex. You asked her to go. You should also believe her since you kind of went through this with your scummy doctor boyfriend and she proved her loyalty and honesty. So, like, this is your trauma response and I'm not here for it, okay? Go talk to someone and stop accusing your friend of lying. Blanche can hardly believe Dorothy's response or refusal to believe her, so she runs after her when she walks away, causing Blanche to nearly hit an old fool. Once she catches up with Dorothy, Blanche makes an excellent point. Two, actually. First and foremost, why don't you believe me? Secondly, even if I had slept with him, why would you have any right to be mad? Those are fair questions. As Blanche continues to push, saying, hey, you put me in this position, then when I actually enjoyed myself, you're still mad? Can I do anything right? Were you just setting me up for failure? Finally, Dorothy breaks. She's upset at the fact that the fact has made her upset. She knows she shouldn't care about who Stan sees. She knows she asked her friend to go out with him. She also knows she has no right to be mad, and she still is, all of which is very upsetting. I hate that feeling where I'm not mad at the situation. I'm mad that the situation has me mad. Do you know what I'm talking about, Coco? Something like that usually precedes stress tears. Yes. It's coming. I can feel uh-huh. it because it's so many things and it doesn't know how to come out. Mm-hmm. And so it comes out as tears for me. <laughs> but not the- sad tears. Yeah, just. If you if I'm upset and like angry and crying, whoa. <laughs> Look out. Who knows what the result will be. (laughs) Yeah, that's the worst. When you can see what it is that's making you upset. Well, we've had some things going on in our lives with people. And it's like, I'm not mad at them doing that to me. But I'm mad at the whole thing happening. Which then is like, well, how am I not mad at the thing? And so you're kind of just like 
your little hamster on the wheel is just going in circles in your head and it's yeah, it is so frustrating. Having no real no direction to really point that thing. Yeah, cuz it's like you've finally gotten to the point to be able to recognize stuff, to go, I know why that is upsetting. So it shouldn't be upsetting and then you still can't control it. It's like ha. Ah. Dorothy apologizes and they hug it out. Blanche even comforts her. Of course you're upset. You were dumped by your dream man just last night. Exactly. Take stock of your emotions, Dorothy. Remember, you've been dumped and all this stuff is going on with Stan. Take it easy on yourself, but recognize where the feelings are truly originating. After hugging and talking it out, the ladies both feel better about everything, which is great because Blanche didn't want there to be any tension between them when she went out with Stan again tonight. As the information processes through Dorothy's mind, she bolts around the corner when she realizes what Blanche has just said. With an almost growl emanating from her now hunched up with monstrous anger body, Dorothy snarls, You're going out again tonight? Countering with a bird-like chirp is Blanche. Yes, we're going out to the Burt Reynolds Dinner Theater, which is an hour and a half away. I wonder if Stan gets a look-alike discount when he goes. Showing at the theater that night is the Kane Mutiny Court Martial, which is a two-act play from 1951. It's basically a courtroom drama about a Navy ship. While there's no record of Mash's Klinger, a.k.a. Jamie Farr, playing in the drama, there was a movie made in 1988 starring Jeff Daniels and in 1954 starring Humphrey Bogart. Captain, we've steamed over our own tow line. Who said we steamed over the tow line? Who said that? We've cut the target adrift. We did nothing of the kind. Something must have been wrong with the cable. Okay, I only watched a few clips to get an idea about what the story was and to find some fun sound bites, but I am now super interested in watching this movie. Thank you, Blanche. Coming from around another aisle in a pleated beige pant, checkered top that appears to be inspired by Sophia's house dress, and pink cardigan is Rose, who is walking behind denim with pink collared dress and blue cardiganed Sophia, who has pushed her cart into Blanche's. Before taking a moment to see who she hit, Sophia starts with the scam. Ah, my back! So on and so forth. Once she realized it was Blanche, all of her pain goes away and she's back to being annoyed they were blocking her. Once again, we learn the ladies are all shopping together, breaking into teams of two and tackling half the list each, a lesson they didn't learn from the way they met. Sophia has decided she and Rose should double up their sandwich making. Apparently no one caught on to the potatoes, or maybe it's better than it sounds. Hopefully, along with the extra foil they're getting, they'll grab some tomatoes. And no, Sophia isn't phased by Johnny Notham's threat to have his friends lean on her. She can call Palermo, a city in Sicily, home to the mafia that began in the 1800s, and get her own friends to lean on or put pressure on Johnny Notham's to give her money or pay for protection or other mafia moneymakers. Okay, maybe Sophia's friends are more hardcore, seeing as they wouldn't put pressure on Johnny, they would just put concrete tires on his food truck which is really just a play on how the Mafia puts people in concrete shoes before pushing them into the water. There's a tugboat down by the river, don't you know? Where a cement bag just drooping on down. Before she gets too comfortable, Dorothy reminds Sophia that the only person she knows in Palermo is Uncle Vito. Sure, says Sophia, but if someone teases him about his limp and he's got piano wire, another tool favorited by the mob, well, just sit back and watch what happens. Getting back to the shopping, Blanche starts a friendly conversation about what Dorothy thinks about the sandwich business. Once again, Dorothy is ignoring her and starts naming more items from the list. Now what is it, Blanche asks. Nearly breaking the shelf off the wall with a slap, a ferocious Dorothy snarls at Blanche that she can't believe she's going out with Stan for a third night. An argument ensues, Blanche asking why she shouldn't go out with him. Dorothy barking, of course I'm mad, you're sleeping with my husband. During all of this, they neglect to notice the crowd of shoppers that has gathered around them, eavesdropping and staring in disbelief. Annoyed by the onlookers, Blanche shoes them off with some shade. Go back to your lesser peas. Lesser peas were made by Lesser brand. They still exist and are considered a bit of a fancy pea as they are extra tiny and extra sweet. Seizing the opportunity, Dorothy uses the crowd as an unofficial jury. She presents her case. If there's nothing going on between her and Stan, she shouldn't mind calling off that evening's plans. Blanche states her defense. We're only going to a play and he's her ex. Fed up with having to defend and explain herself to strangers or friends, Blanche storms off. 
Back at home, we find the sandwich queens going through their earnings, including IOUs, which literally stand for I owe you, something stores used to do if they knew you, sort of like a form of credit. The unfortunate thing here is that once one guy said he only had a $100 bill and Rose didn't have the change, so he got to leave with a sandwich based off an IOU, the rest of the workers heard and did the same thing, leaving the gals sandwichless and broke. Where's all the money? That's as good as money, sir. Those are IOUs. Go ahead and add it up. Every cent's accounted for. Look. See this? That's a car. 275000 might want to hang on to that one. Rose didn't realize she got scammed, so Sophia is walking her through a quick economics lesson. Number one, don't be dumb. Number two, supply and demand. Supply the sandwiches after you get paid, which is not the rule of supply and demand. That refers to the price of something changing due to the demand of consumers. Gasoline is always the best example of this. When we were in a quarantine and not driving, gas went down. Now that more people are back on the road, and for about 12,000 other contributing factors, the price has gone up. As for lesson three, see lesson one. When Dorothy enters the kitchen, she's surprised to find Rose and Sophia, thinking Blanche was there. Sophia shares that once she thought she was the longest-living first lady, wife to President Harry Truman, best Truman. When that happened, they upped her medication. Along the same lines, Rose once had a family member who thought he was the invasive conscience of Pinocchio, Jiminy Cricket. When you get in trouble and you don't know right from wrong, give a little whistle, give a little whistle. As it's getting late in the evening, Rose is in her pink with little flowers robe, Sophia in her light blue, purple, and green nightdress, and Dorothy is once again rocking her, there is no way that Victorian collar is comfortable, white nightgown. As Dorothy leaves, she tells the girls to let her know when Blanche gets home. She has some things to say to her. Once she's gone, Rose asks Sophia if she thinks she's mad because she thinks Blanche is sleeping with Stan or because she thinks Blanche is lying about not sleeping with him. Sophia thinks it could be both. Her nonchalant attitude about it has Rose asking if she even cares that the girls are fighting. Of course she does. To prove so, she takes us to Sicily, where she boarded a ship to America. Everyone on the ship was partying. Oh boy, the Irish, of course, being the only ones drinking. Come on now, Sophia, we've talked about this. While everyone was hopeful on day one, day two had everyone down. The weather turned, it was cold, people were hungry, struggling to play shuffleboard. Then, months later, Sophia finally found her mother in the fog, and behind her, the Statue of Liberty. After her momentary celebration, Sophia yelled out to the captain to slow down before he passed her, calling him a fool in Yiddish, a yutz. But the yutz didn't listen. Seeing as there is no Spillsbury, Massachusetts, where Sophia claimed the boat eventually docked, they would have probably ended up somewhere like Newport, Rhode Island, or Martha's Vineyard, a little over 200 miles from the Statue of Liberty. As her story came to an end, Rose couldn't help but ask what the point of it was. The point? asked Sophia. The point is that I told you in our lessons that number one and three were don't be an idiot. And while I distracted you with that dumb story, I stole 40 bucks. Fun fact alert, according to WorldWideWords.com, cockamamie, as far as a word origin goes, is related to the word decal, both stemming from the French word déclamonné. That word means to decorate things with transfers, like decals. Then, as fashion trends changed, the word cockamamie was formed, meaning something implausible or ridiculous, much like Sophia's story. Passing through a sitcom time hole, Dorothy is back in the kitchen looking for Blanche. She's obviously quite anxious at the idea of her best friend having sex with her ex-husband. Additionally, she's bitter. If you added up all of the time they spent getting frisky in their 38-year marriage, it would still mean Blanche should have been home 15 minutes ago. So let's do some fun math. Say Blanche and Stan have been out for about six hours. They left at six for dinner, they went out for drinks, and it's now midnight. Six hours equals 360 minutes. Subtract the 15 minutes Dorothy claims would still be in play, and we have 345. For fun, let's just divide that into their years of marriage, 38 and you get nine and some change. That would mean in 38 years of marriage, they averaged nine minutes of sex a year. I made a mistake. That wasn't fun math. Walking into the mudroom garage door area, Dorothy starts to put on her beige trench coat. A worried Rose asks where she's going, giving us a classic Dorothyism. 
In response to the question, she says, to get ice cream or commit a felony, I'll decide in the car. Which, if that isn't the most relatable plan, I don't know what is. I know I've definitely gotten in my car thinking I should just go get a blizzard when really I maybe want to drive to someone's house and share some thoughts. As Dorothy leaves out the back, there's a ringing of the doorbell. Rose answers it to find Vinny and Rocco, two of Johnny No Thumb's cronies. Rocco, the big guy in the back with the permanent scowl, I don't think he did much more acting as he isn't listed on IMDb or even in the end credits of this episode. Maybe he just worked on the show and had the right look, or maybe he was a real mobster and didn't want anyone to know his name. As for Vinny, he was listed and has been listed on many a program through the years, from Cagney and Lacey and Who's the Boss before the Golden Girls and Golden Palace, Empty Nest, Seinfeld, ER, and Home Improvement After, you've probably come across Tommy LaGrua in his 59 roles through the years. Besides his many appearances in hit shows, he will also be back with the girls in a couple of years. And of course, he followed up his time in Miami with a spot on La La. As the two guests make it clear they are there for some leaning, Rose does the reasonable thing and tells Sophia she has guests. Cutting to our favorite hotel with an updated room for season two, we hear and see the shadow of Stanley, who is giggling at and toying with whoever is under the comforter. When there's a knock at his door, he asks who it is. Hearing it's Dorothy, he starts to panic. He tells his bedmate to stay under the covers and he'll get rid of the unwelcome guest. Assuming that because Dorothy has arrived there in her nightgown, Stan thinks it means that she's there for a little romp in the sack. Pointing out his stupidity, Dorothy tells him he's one chromosome away from being a potato. I know this information maybe wasn't accessible or even known then, but fun fact, potatoes only have two more chromosomes than us. So that's really a mild throwing of shade as the average person is only two away from a potato. With today's science, this actually becomes an oh boy, as people with Down syndrome have 47 chromosomes, one being a copy of another. So maybe the next time we could say something like a fruit fly, as they only have eight. Stan starts to stammer about having to get up in the morning, hoping Dorothy will just leave. But he really should know her a little better. Of course she's not going to go until she wants to. She's there to talk to Blanche, and since Stan has his toupee on and the TV is off, it means, well, let's just say he won't be feeling independently sexy while watching Three's Company star and blonde bombshell Suzanne Summers on The Tonight Show, leaving only one answer. There is a woman, a Blanche-named woman, in his bed. Dorothy makes her way into the room, ignoring Stan's attempted interruptions. Standing at the bedside, Dorothy starts to talk to Blanche. She's been spending the day trying to make the situation right in her head, trying to find a validating manner in which she could be okay with her and Stan being together. But she just can't. She is shocked Blanche would be willing to throw away their friendship for someone she's equally shocked she's attracted to. On top of all of that, Dorothy can't understand why in this case, when it might hurt her friend, Blanche couldn't have resisted the temptation to have sex. The lies continued when they didn't need to. She could have just stepped up and admitted what they were doing, knowing that, even though it shouldn't have, it bothered Dorothy. Wrapping up her speech, Dorothy is shocked when the blankets fly open only to expose a young blonde with a childlike voice. Lana Schwab, the shock beneath the sheets, hasn't worked since 2005, but before then she was known for roles on shows like Murder, She Wrote, Night Court, Married with Children, Life Goes On, Quantum Leap, and Step by Step not to mention films like the Twilight Zone movie and the Bridges of Madison County. The girl with the iconic laugh and overdone makeup giggles at Dorothy's serious nature, pointing out that she wouldn't have slept with the guy if she had known he was married, but she just found out too. Running out of the room, Dorothy is headed back to the house. When she gets there, we have once again gone through a sitcom time warp. It was late at night, but there was light out when the mobsters were at the front door. Their appearance happened right as Dorothy was leaving. Stan was staying in town, so his hotel is, what, we'll say 20 minutes away at most? Her conversation was only a few minutes, so we'll say she was gone about half an hour. We could even say an hour. Maybe she went cruising around town. And in that hour, Sophia called Uncle Vito, had him get guys to Johnny Notham's, have them sort things out, and Johnny was able to get a late-night florist who delivered within 15 minutes. Sitcom time is magical. With the treats from the mafia and the lack of making any money from their newest venture, the ladies have called it quits. Finding Blanche reading a book in the living room, meaning in that same time frame she got home from her date, changed, and settled in for the night, 
Dorothy starts out with an apology. Leading by beautiful example, Blanche doesn't do the thing we all do to end these kind of awkward conversations by just hearing an, I'm sorry, and going, it's okay. She's saying, okay, as in, go on, explain what you are apologizing for. Dorothy kind of just leaves it at that before really opening up, taking responsibility for how she has been behaving, sharing how she had gone to his hotel room to talk to her. Blanche tells her she wasn't there because she ended things, even though there was nothing to end. She loved and respected her friend too much to hurt her like that. Dorothy knows she's in the wrong, but she can't really explain it better than that, except that she wanted her time and memories with him to have been between the two of them. She didn't want to know exactly how he was going to act, except to have it all be with her best friend. In addition, she was lonely, sad, and a little jealous. She was feeling it all. Luckily, Blanche has a term for that feeling, magenta. While the actual color magenta is halfway between red and blue, it also encompasses purple elements, which is why it is such a perfect analogy for experiencing too many emotions. You're not fully red with anger, not completely blue with sadness. Magenta, a color and feeling Blanche hates. Just as Dorothy couldn't explain her emotion, Blanche can't fully explain her feelings around magenta. Luckily, when you're with true friends, you don't have to explain those things. They're just understood. Hugging and nearly crying it out on the couch, the girls are back to talking, and Blanche has just one question. Why the hell did you ever marry that man? Simple, says Dorothy. When he had hair, he was quite handsome. When he was younger, there was an elegant charm. And when we got married, I was four months pregnant, being the most important reason of all. When feelings and friendships overlap, a lot of emotional navigation is at play. Just like Rose's Viking ancestors, the ladies had to put on their metal bras and dig deep to find the source of their feelings so they could work it out. Did Blanche have every right to see Stan? Of course. She was forced into it in the first place. Was Dorothy in the right to have unexpected magenta feelings about the situation? Absolutely. Both ladies could have done more to keep the waters smooth. Blanche could have said no as soon as Dorothy said it bothered her. Valid reason or not, your friend is hurting, so let's not gaslight. Dorothy could have said earlier that she didn't know why, but she hated the situation. Once again, she needed to trust her friend. You can't say someone is your best friend and in the same breath call them a liar. It does not compute. Loyalty and communication were lacking this week, and look where it got them. No, I'm not talking about the sandwich peddlers, but same goes for those two. Be honest, trust, talk. Keep doing those things, and you'll keep your friendship boat afloat. As always, thank you for listening, and thank you for being a friend. Be sure to tune in next week when we'll meet the one and only Frida Claxton and find out why Rose wants to punch her in the face. Today's golden goodie was a bit of a surprise for me. A targeted Instagram ad actually introduced me to something cool, Philomena Ruth. While I am personally fond of her shirts like Hardworking Stoner and Don't Be a Dick, I had to share that in addition to her great clothing line, she also has Golden Girls mugs, wine glasses, catnip toys, rolling trays, candles, keychains, cards, and buttons. So go spend all of your money like I'm about to and check out philomenaandruth.com. That's P-H-I-L-O-M-E-N-A-A-N-D. R-U-T-H dot com and be sure to follow her on Instagram at the same name. (laughs) (laughs) Come on down to Matt's Beefer Blowout. You said Beverly Hills. And not Billy's, but you said a bunch. You, there was a few words missing there. Oh, can you? Am I okay? <laughs> yeah, it was like a heavy rotation, man. <laughs> okay. It was like, <laughs> it was like <laughs> it's like there's like a a wagon on a bumpy road, and all this <laughs> shit was flying off. <laughs> I'm concerned about my brain. Can I give it a whirl? Please. Bacon, lettuce, and potato. Wow. Bacon, That's... lettuce, potato. Bacon, lettuce, tomato. Is that what you said? Yes, I have all of these beautiful slimy. Po- Tomatoes. <laughs> Take some of these recipes of the last few episodes and do an eating Patreon. Make a break. Back for- <laughs> <laughs> but that's what I'm saying. As far as making Blanche sound extra slutty. Oh, I see. They could have really, you know. I feel like they probably meant the eight. <laughs>
And by them, I mean the writers. Yeah, all 16 of them. I mean, either way. Eight, 16, or one. Good for her. Blanche is having fun. <laughs> and that's canon. <laughs> I did you just off. give me a Johnny No Thumbs hello? I did. Double. <laughs> Double Johnny No Thumbs hello. Any comments on nine minutes of sexy? <laughs> Been there. <laughs> Relatable. Hated that. <laughs> Always Be My Sisters is written, hosted, and created by Alicia Holland. Produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Always Be My Sisters is a Cascade Media production. You'll always be my sister.